Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In the 1800s, there were three Seminole Wars as defined by the U.S. government. Each differed in scope, strategy, and tactics, but shared the common goal of containment and removal of the Seminole from Florida. The U.S. government's fundamental premise remained constant, and that premise was that the Native peoples could not exist with American settlers seeking new land opportunities in Florida. In fact, though, it was the reverse. American settlers could not or would not coexist with Native peoples, such as the Seminole. The U.S. government instituted policies and then military actions to separate the land that settlers desired from the Seminole Indians who occupied it. Here to help us understand is our guest today, Brent R. Weisman. Dr. Weisman is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. He has served as the editor of the Florida Anthropologist, as president of the Seminole Wars Historic Foundation, and the Alliance for Whedon Island Archaeological Research and Education. And he was a founding director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. His research interests continue to be Seminole Indian culture and history, Florida archaeology, and North American Indians. He has written and published numerous journal articles and books about the Seminole. Dr. Weissman, welcome to the Seminole Wars. I'm happy to be here. In a few words, uh, please sum up what the Seminole Wars were and what you think the Seminole strategy was to fight them. The Seminole Wars were primarily wars of, that resulted from the American policy of Indian removal, removing the Seminoles from their Florida homelands to new territory in the west, west of the Mississippi River, and Indian territory in what is now the state of Oklahoma. The American policy was formulated actually back with Thomas Jefferson, who was the first to express it, and his uh, famous Louisiana Purchase was in part derived from his motivation to his realization that for the American civilization to, to uh, progress, the Indians had to be removed. And uh, this new territory out in the West, which he thought was basically uninhabited, which turned out not to be the case, uh, would be the ideal place to remove the Indians to get them safely out of the way uh, so that they could uh, pursue their own their own life, lifestyle while the Americans uh, settled the eastern seaboard and uh, moved west. So the Second Seminole War and the Third Seminole War resulted from the uh, American Indian Removal Act, which was put into law in 1830, and the Seminole resistance to being removed led to the military uh, actions and effort to forcibly remove them. The first Seminole War uh, was Jackson's attack, invasion of Florida in 1817 and 1818. A slightly different motivation at that time, uh, but since it was an attack on the Seminoles, 
in Florida. It's been uh, grouped into the first of the three Seminole Wars. Seminole's strategy basically was as as best as possible to avoid uh, armed conflict with with the troops, to keep moving out of their way, stay hidden to when they gained an advantage by using the terrain to their benefit, uh, to attack, um, to repulse the uh, invading soldiers, uh, for the most part, however, not to engage them in direct uh, rank and file sorts of fighting uh, with almost, with the exception of one case, basically, that almost never happened. So it was really uh, sort of guerrilla warfare on the Seminole part to try to stay out of the way, to strike when advantageous to them. Uh, but to them, it was always a numbers game. They didn't have enough uh, warriors to keep replacing those that were killed, wounded, or captured. Where on the uh, American military side, of course, they could keep bringing in troops, uh, keep replenishing those that that uh, became too ill to fight, became casualties of the war, or whose enlistments ended and returned home. So it was a number of game for them, and they just they want to hopefully uh, engage in a, in a war of attrition where the Americans would just give up, would, would have spent too much money, would have lost too many lives, would have become politically unpopular to keep pursuing the removal of the Indians, and that was their, that was their hope. And uh, so the Second Seminole War, of course, dragged on for seven years, and uh, was uh, basically a war of frustration uh, for the American side. Eventually did result in the removal of many of the Seminoles, of course not all of them. Uh, the third war was an attempt to, to uh, final attempt at removal, and some more were removed then, uh, but uh, of course not all, and the Seminole Indians, Seminole tribes, the Miccosukee tribes that live in Florida today are the descendants of those that were able to make it through War One, War Two, and War Three. In military parlance, they have a term called the center of gravity. Uh, the Prussian military theor theorist and strategist Karl von Clausewitz described it as the source of power, the source of power that provides moral or physical strength, freedom of action, or the will to act. In the case of at least the Second Seminole War, what do you think the Seminole viewed as the center of gravity against which they fought? Was it the army? Was it the U.S. government? And was their intent to strike hard enough at their enemy's center of gravity so as to make them give up the fight and then just leave them alone? I think the Seminoles were not fighting against the U.S. government, not fighting against some large, amorphous, abstract enemy, but were engage with what was with what was right in front of them which would be the uh, incoming oncoming uh, soldiers being pushed into their into their heartland into the very heart and soul of their of their homeland so I think what what they were pushing back against was, was the immediate threat of troops uh, coming into their into their villages into their towns burning their fields uh, capturing their 
uh, women and children. And uh, they, as I, as I said, I think their primary goal was to, to get out of their way uh, and let the soldiers thrash around in the wilderness um, and just lose heart, lose soul, lose the, their momentum, lose their will to fight. So what the Seminoles had on their side was they were defending their homeland. What the soldiers had on their side was they were enlisted either as, as in the regular army or as militia, and uh, they had a job to do. They were following orders, and uh, that is not quite as strong a motivation as defending where your ancestors were, were buried, where your children were born, where you were making a living, uh, where you were hoping to, to raise your, your families and have your descendants live there in perpetuity. So the motivations were different. The military, the army actually had strategy, had tactics to, to achieve that strategy. And the, some of the military officers that were leading the troops were battle-hardened veterans already when they got here. So I think some, sometimes people get the mistaken impression that the army was naive, they didn't know what they were doing, they were wandering around, they were lost. Um, when you look at the actual history of it, Jessup, Gaines, Scott, and others, had, these guys were, were veterans of the War of 1812. They had fought in the wilderness. They had fought with Indians and against Indians. They, they were not the kinds that were going to be, uh, they were not timid. These, these Army officers were warriors in their own right. And the, I'm not sure that the Seminoles were quite prepared for the determination that some of the officers were willing to um, exhibit in, in, their, in their attempts to remove the Seminoles. And the Army officers were struck also by the courage and bravery of the Seminoles and, and came to understand their tactics too. So you see, even with uh, officers like Jessup, who gets much maligned in, his, in some of the decisions he made, his underlying respect for what the Seminoles were doing and his attempt to follow his orders and remove the Seminoles with perhaps doing as less, doing, uh, as less damage as possible to them as a people and to them as a culture. So it's a very complicated story. Uh, and there, there perhaps are no good guys and no bad guys. It's, it's it's people on both sides that had that were that had honorable intentions, I guess, and they were in conflict with each other. And oftentimes, that is the story of history. Indeed, looking at from the U.S. Army perspective, they might have seen the seminal center of gravity as chiefs and the force on a battlefield. And if they can defeat the force, then they've hit the the seminal center of gravity, and they won. But over time, they found out that was not the center of gravity. And eventually, they started going after the food source. And that ended up being the center of gravity that uh, allowed them to uh, forcibly remove most of the seminal. From the seminal perspective, they fought uh, the army, hoping they could get the army to give up. 
um, and uh, see the futility of removing them. That was not the center of gravity either. It was back in the Jackson and then Van Buren administrations, and they didn't want to budge. So no matter how much uh, pain the Seminole inflicted on um, the U.S. Army in the field, um, they still could not get that uh, policy changed until a new administration came in, which didn't, as we say, have a dog in the fight. And they said, why are we spending all this money on this? And then the uh, culmination of all that the, the Seminole had done in resisting finally came to the fore. And um, they uh, came to an accommodation where they left the, the few Seminole who remained in the Evergates alone, at least uh, until later in the, in the Third Seminole War. Um, looking at it this way, how successful would you say the Seminole were changing the enemy's policy? Uh, or is it something of a mixed bag because of the cost involved? Well, I think that they were successful in wearing, wearing it out and wearing it down and holding on long enough to, as you say, Weighed out some of the uh, weighed out the change of administrations, and to the extent they were aware of that is is questionable. Um, I think they were just, from their standpoint, uh, holding on as long as possible, hoping that the uh, the troops would just go away. Now, did they did they understand the presidential politics in Washington? It's not that they couldn't understand. They, had, they were very sophisticated in understanding American government and politics. And uh, they had uh, many experiences already, as, as other American Indians had, with the nuances of United States governance. So it's not that they were unsophisticated, uh, hoping that the, the will of the soldiers on, on the ground would somehow trans, translate back to... Uh, to the officers who would somehow just pull the, pull the men back. So I think that was their daily hope. They had a lot of things in their favor in the sense of they were largely dispersed with few instances, a large concentration of Seminoles in one place that could have been annihilated by any kind of military action. So they were, they were dispersed, which made them hard to get. And the... Uh, you could see the army movements time and again uh, moving in the direction of where scouts or uh, people had indicated they may have seen the Indian, the Seminoles, getting there and either not finding them or finding a much smaller group than what they had anticipated. So they were never able to bring the full force of, in, of the Indians into into engagement at any one time that would have racked up a solid defeat in Napoleonic terms. So there was a lot of chasing around, and that, that did become uh, kind of a war of attrition. The other thing, of course, is the Seminoles had the terrain on their favor. They, they used the terrain as a weapon, um, as a tactical weapon, and only engaged with the Army when they when the Seminoles themselves had put themselves in a position to uh, use the terrain in the, to their benefit, behind making the soldiers attack across a swamp or a slough or uh, getting them in an ambush where the troops were moving into, a, into an open area that was surrounded on three sides by, by woods or forest. Now, some of these Indians... Uh, fighting tactics had been 
developed years before in the French and Indian conflicts, and just just were part of frontier fighting. And the Seminoles inherited that uh, as American Indians, uh, and Florida was a perfect place for that to for that to play out. And so they used that; that was to their advantage. Um, but like you said, the the sort of the killing blow was the attack on their food sources. And uh, time and again, the military, the, the army would go in to abandoned villages that had just been abandoned and find, find corn cribs or uh, pumpkins or beans uh, stacked up and stashed and just would just burn, burn the entire food source or go through the fields and put them to the torch and uh, kill and capture their cattle. And so... On the Seminole side, it became a war of attrition for them as well. It's running out of food, and they, you know they, these were these were farmers. They grew crops. They had cattle, and uh, crops don't grow overnight. You have to prepare the fields. You have to plant the seeds, take care of them, weed and cultivate and harvest and store, and all that takes months and months. And that's not something you do can do while you're being chased around. As Sherman's march through Georgia showed, that sort of uh, scorched earth policy works very well. Except in some respects, when you get to the Everglades, because they had those, those, uh, those little islands. And to get to them, the soldiers might have to wade in and get in. And they didn't want to do well, that for the longest period of time. That's true, but that happens, that happens earlier than you might think. And you know, they, they were sending in uh, the, the Navy and these dugout boats that they made especially for that purpose. And yes, they were these small uh, hammocks in the Everglades that, in which, on which the Seminoles were growing pumpkins and corn and had small patches, but those weren't enough to sustain over a period of, of years. And one by one, they became discovered too. So the uh, Army and the Navy, working in South Florida, working in conjunction with each other, um, really were amazingly persistent, given the conditions, in rooting out uh, the Seminoles. And oftentimes, as we've said, they didn't encounter the Indians themselves. They encountered the, their abandoned villages or their fields, uh, all of which were put to the torch. And uh, uh, over time, that took a toll. We did have Seminoles turning themselves in, you know, uh, giving up, uh, being deported, realizing that their future for their families, the safety of their families would be elsewhere, not in Florida, and making that decision. Uh, one by one, band, you know, different bands would, would make those decisions and, and turn themselves in. So there were Indian casualties, yes. There were... Warriors killed in battle, yes, but uh, most of the Seminoles ended up being deported, either being captured or by just making a decision it was time to uh, time to rebuild their lives elsewhere. You mentioned about the terrain. Uh, one of the things the Army did in conjunction with terrain was deal with the climate, and they went in the winter cooler season, and it took them several years before they decided that they couldn't allow 
the campaign to end because the Seminoles could then use the summer months to plant and uh, to uh, restock and so forth. And so they kept the fighting going on year round where they could down in the Everglades. How big an impact was that on the Seminole? Oh, I think that added to it. That, that definitely had an impact on them. Uh, the Army was, as I, as I said, very persistent and in their efforts. And they were going to try to carry out this policy of removal uh, despite the hardships on their part. Uh, so we, we have uh, a, a, an antagonist and a protagonist here, uh, both of which are, are fighting under under duress, under very harsh conditions, and um, it was a case of who who was going to give up first. And, they, and you know, ultimately, we might say both sides just called it off. Um, and the you know, by eighteen by late eighteen forty one into eighteen forty two, uh, it was becoming clear that the kind of outcome that the government had hoped for was not going to happen. It was not going to be complete removal. And uh, the harder, by that point, the harder they tried, the less results they were getting. So it was the cost-benefit ratio had definitely gone into the cost column heavily. Now, when the third war comes around, it's amazing to see how the Seminoles had, the surviving Seminoles from the Second Seminole War had rebuilt their culture, had rebuilt their agriculture, had, uh, they had cattle again, they were growing large fields with crops, and had reestablished themselves. And the, the uh, army wasn't quite sure what they were going to find when they went in at that point. Uh, and I think that the, uh, they were faced with some of the same problems. And the Seminole tactics were very similar, trying to avoid and stay out of the way and, and let the army uh, plunge around through the swamps till they, uh, till they reached exhaustion. But ultimately, the same thing happens. The army, just through persistence, now the, the first, third war was mostly militia, volunteers. Uh, they are, they're going in there and, and burning the fields and the and the villages and the corn cribs and inflicting the same kind of scorched earth policy that was effective in the Second Seminole War and pushing, even though they rarely encountered uh, groups of warriors and uh, in any kind of pitched battle situation, uh, pushing the Seminoles further and further to the east through the Big Cypress and into the Everglades. And uh, again, uh, it became a case of cost-benefit where they realized they're not going to get them all. Maybe they could, maybe somehow the problem can be pushed down the road for another generation to figure out. Uh, maybe the Seminoles could be, could survive uh, on their own and they would never be bothered by the encroaching white civilization. There would be no conflicts. Of course, we know, we know, uh, that really wasn't going to happen, but ultimately the survivors of the Third War uh, are basically hiding out for 20 years or so, not seen by, by many whites except for some of the, the proprietors of the trading houses. And when re-encountered by government agents in the 
1880. These were descendants of the warriors of the Third War, or in some cases, the elders were the warriors of the Third War, and some of them, and some of them even survivors of the Second War, um, seem to have no interest in armed conflict. Um, their main interest was in being left alone. They had, by this time, well settled into to a lifestyle um, that was adapted to the subtropics of the Everglades and um, were hoping again to be to be left alone. That ultimately happened only to the extent that they weren't they weren't forced to be removed. And of course, the, the modern political history of the Seminoles in the, in the 20th century is a long and very complicated story in and of itself. Uh, they their interactions with the American, with the United States government, intensify after the turn of the 20th century, and um, some of these same issues come up again in terms of what to do with the Seminoles, what to do with the Indian American Indians in general. Through the 1920s and 1930s, the Indian New Deal and the reorganization of the Indians into federally recognized tribes, gaining them recognition and and some degree of sovereignty, uh, and that brings them into the present time. Probably because of Hollywood, Americans who think of uh, Indians, think of them with bows and arrows. If they have rifles, they're on horses and they're out in the West somewhere. Yet uh, the Seminoles weren't known for their horsemanship per se in these wars, um, but they did have rifles. How big an impact was that yeah. in how this war was waged? The fact that the Seminoles had access to gunpowder and um, and to ammunition and were able to use uh, weapons often better than the weapons issued to the soldiers who came down. Well, I think that that had an impact. They had two had adversaries, both of whom were armed with firearms. Um, that had an impact. The, the problem on the Seminole side, of course, was the supply of ammunition and the supply of, of uh, lead shot. So you see them early in the war stockpiling powder and stockpiling shot. And, of course, the, as they were increasingly purchasing it from the Indian agency and the trading post, that was one of the red flags that was going up that they were preparing for something that would be a, in, a, in terms of armed resistance to removal. But we also see from uh, some of the uh, military diaries that uh, that caches of gunpowder and shot were discovered in the abandoned villages and so forth. But ultimately, that did become a problem um, in terms of supplying the ammunition. But let's not also forget that they were still that they also could use quite ably bows and arrows. They were using them through the uh, end of the 19th century quite effectively. And that perhaps, the, the psychology of that was perhaps uh, more powerful to the Army than being shot at by weapons that they were familiar with. Uh, you read, in, particularly in the Western Wars, where you, Western Indian Wars, but that's probably the case in Florida, too, where the, the idea of being shot with an arrow was, was terrifying. To, to a soldier who had no experience with that kind of weapon at all, had no no concept of what it would feel like to have an arrow propel itself into your body, and that was that was terrifying. Then being scalped, 
and of course there was uh, considerable scalping taking place in the in the Seminole Wars. And uh, I think the fear of being shot with an arrow, and the fear of uh, uh, falling wounded or or being captured and being scalped, were things that that went on in the minds of the soldiers. And so that fear factor, I think, uh, worked to the advantage of the Seminoles. The Seminoles did something else psychologically. They would take some captured uniforms and wear them into battle. What kind of message did that send yeah, to soldiers? It had two effects, at least. One, and we see that in Okeechobee, uh, where uh, the Seminoles wearing captured uh, military, uh, captured army jackets are mistaken for for uh, the Creek uh, volunteers that were with uh, Taylor's and the Missouri Volunteers at, at Okeechobee Battle. So they, they were mistaken. And that was probably a ploy they used, I'm sure it was, to uh, throw to throw confusion into the ranks of the uh, Army. The second thing was, it was sort of a bragging right. It was a trophy. It was a trophy to have, to be seen wearing an Army jacket. It was saying, look, we took this from you. Uh, you know, come and get me if you can, but, you know, we took this from one of your fellows. And uh, so, um, be you know, beware, be on the lookout. We're we're nobody to be, we're not to be messed with. So yeah, I think that that did have a psychological effect. Um, of course, there's a long history of American Indians wearing mili- military uniforms, both British and uh, United States uniforms, uh, proudly as either as uh, tokens of status that they were given these as uh, as acknowledgement that these were important people, these were important warriors. Uh, even even Tecumseh, you know, who was uh, as anti-American as they come, uh, was, uh, you know, wearing, you, you see him wearing a military uh, jacket. They used the, the military clothing sort of as complex, uh, very visible symbolism. And I think it did have an effect, as you said, on the psychology of the soldiers. One of the things in, in uh, talking about these wars, we say, well, what kind of war was it? Was it a war of attrition? Was it a war of exhaustion? And we tend to think in in a binary way about it. Well, this side fought a war of attrition. This side fought a war of exhaustion. But I think, as you've discussed here, you could have both sides fighting a war of attrition and a war of exhaustion at the same time. Yes, I think that is. I think that ultimately is what happens. Um, both sides become uh, become played out. They become exhausted, and uh, they just sort of. It, it's like uh, two boxers in the ring that you know finally reach a point where they realize that neither one's going to knock the other one down. They just kind of withdraw back into their corners, and I think you know that that's what that's what happens. Uh, in terms of a warrior culture or warrior mentality, or I think both sides deserve credit. In, in terms of that, now, the, was it was it right to uh, send armed soldiers down here to force them to kill and capture and forcibly remove the Seminoles? That's a discussion. Uh, that is that is a moral, or ethical, political point that is uh, is is quite uh, controversial and was so at the time. We don't want to simplify history to the point where we think that uh, the entire American public and all the politicians were were slamming their fists on the table demanding that the Seminoles and other Indians be removed. That wasn't the case at all. There was quite a uh, 
like like with Vietnam, there was quite a bit of dissension about whether or not this was the right thing to do, and were the Indian what right did the Indians have to to maintain living in their own homeland? That these were all very hot topics discussed then, thought about then. So um, this wasn't a again this was a very uh, complicated time in American history and. Um, it wasn't by consensus, by majority rule, that that the Indians were were removed. There's, they had lots of sympathizers uh, amongst uh, the American citizenry that said they should have stayed. Even you know, even the some of the military officers, uh, the longer they're here, they get it. They think, you know, why are we doing this? Jessup Jessup was of that mindset. Why are we doing this? Um, we yes, I, I have my orders to fulfill, but is it the right thing to do? Is it the right way to treat uh, the native inhabitants of this of this land? Why should we be doing this? And a lot of blame gets shifted, and perhaps rightly so, on the encroaching waves of American settlers that are coming into Florida, the pioneers, the homesteaders coming in, putting pressure on local politicians to to remove these these heathen savages from the land that they thought was rightly theirs. So uh, when you look at the uh, some of the army records, their diaries, Jessup's diaries and letters, uh, when you look at the uh, what's going on with the politicians in Washington, the representatives there that are getting letters, when you look at what when you look at the newspapers from the time period, St. Augustine newspapers, Charleston, New York, the New York Times, New York Herald, so forth. A lot of them are ultimately pointing their finger at why this huge mess is going on in Florida, pointing the finger at at the Florida pioneers coming in and, and not able to to accommodate living with the uh, the indigenous inhabitants of Florida, which is basically what Jackson said too. Jackson was, you know, for their own good, we need to remove the Indians because. The mindset of these pioneers and settlers coming in is not going to accommodate a comp- any kind of compromising lifestyle that gets in their way. So Jackson's rationale was not to remove the Indians because they were um, despicable or unworthy, or it was more or less because uh, to get for their own good. At least that's what that's what he ended up saying. So that's. Um, we have lots of different forces playing out here, and of course, it's expressed in in the armed conflict, which catches a lot of people's attention, as as battles and wars often do, and they become sort of the shorthand uh, iconography that lets us uh, that gives us an easy way to characterize very very complicated historical events. These wars kind of get lost in the history books. If mentioned at all in a general history of the United States, they, they'd probably be lucky to get a line or two. And, and, yet, yeah. and yet you've written that there's a continued historical importance of the Seminole Wars to Florida and the United States. What is that continued historical importance? And is there a consensus on what that historical importance is? I don't think there's a consensus. The reason being is there's not enough people thinking about it to to have a to have a consensus. So uh, I think there are several historical points. 
the significance, though, that, that we should be paying attention to and that uh, historians should be thinking about in terms of the broader framework of both world history and history of the United States. If we look at the Seminole Wars, uh, particularly the First and Second Wars, as conflicts that had to do with slavery, with ownership of slaves, with the problem of escaped slaves, uh, all going around the concept of people legitimately owning other people, lawfully owning other people, and conflicts around that. Who can own people and who can't? And who should be returning uh, captured property to their rightful owners? All those issues are really uh, in really propelling the first war and the second war. And of course, those issues come to a head later in the 1850s uh, in Kansas and Missouri and ultimately in the Civil War. The Seminole Wars are, are a lead up to that. They're, they're sort of a prelude, a preface, a, a uh, foretelling of what was to come the, the major eruption in American history during the Civil War. And of course, many of the, in terms of uh, military experience, many of the officers that become generals in the Civil War got, had their first combat experience here in, in the Florida Wars. So as a prelude to the ultimate war that had to do with slavery, the Seminole Wars deserve national attention. In statewide significance, many people that are new to Florida ask, why are the Seminoles here? Well, the short answer is they're here because they survived the Seminole Wars. And it's, I think it's incumbent upon all citizens of Florida to understand the history of the state involved displacing the indigenous population and that it took an armed conflict to displace the indigenous population. And those Native peoples that remained are the ancestors of today's Seminoles. So that's why they're here. That's why the Seminoles are here, is because they've survived the wars. And that took place right here in Florida not that long ago on the same lands, on the same ground that many of us live on today, that our subdivisions sprawl across, that our, our parking lots and shopping malls have, have, have paved over. That land is either places where this struggle played out or where the Seminoles lived and were living quite peacefully on their own. Um, in, in Florida, the land that we now claim and feel, many people feel it's rightfully theirs without any, any understanding of the very traumatic period of Florida history. That's not that long ago. So, so that, that it should be a, a history lesson that every Florida citizen should learn. It should be taught in school. Not in a simplistic way, but in a way that that really brings out the issues that were animating this conflict back then. And we should, I think, have a an appreciation and an understanding of of why we live here now. The ground that we live on is sacred to other people. That we're here first. That we're here long before us, and that um, and we owe that history basically a debt that. We are here now only because that played out the way it did. That, in my mind, that's real history. That's living history. That's history that, that takes place every day today. It's not history that took place 
and is over with long ago, that's living history. Dr. Weissman, thanks for being with us today. This is a fascinating discussion. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved. <laughs>